Well, if you were with us last week, you will remember that we talked about judgmentalism and hypocrisy. And as Josh just read that text, you might be thinking, are we about to get another sermon on judgmentalism and hypocrisy? Um, And kind of. But Paul's going somewhere in this text, and he's moving the argument forward a little bit. So while it's related, we need to press in a little bit. Here's here's what we said last week. We can't avoid the problems of judgmentalism and hypocrisy because there will be a final judgment where God will expose our hypocrisy and God judges according to the truth. There's no favoritism with God. So we can't ignore these problems. They need to be fixed. But when we come before the judgment seat of God, we, we are looking for God to speak a positive verdict over our life. So if you notice the last verse of the text that Josh read talks about a person's praise coming not from people, but from God. We need God's divine favor. We need his approval. And that's what we're going to consider this morning. How do people find favor from a God who does not show favoritism? Well, I want to point out two misdirected ways of attempting to gain God's favor. And then I want to point out um, a way that we try to escape finding God's favor. And we actually try to find it through other means. And then finally, I want to talk about what the solution to this problem is, how we can actually find God's favor. So let's start by considering the two insufficient methods of finding divine favor that Paul points out in Romans 2, 17 through 23. So if you're following the outline on the screen, this is point one, two insufficient methods for finding God's favor. Here they are. First, um, ethnocentrism or ethnic superiority won't find God's favor. You won't find God's favor through your ethnic superiority, nor second, will you find God's favor through legalistic practices. So let's consider each of these two insufficient methods. First, Paul points out that ethnocentrism or an ethnic superiority will not gain God's approval. So look in the text, that first verse in verse 17, Paul starts out by saying, if you call yourself a Jew, So he's pointing to this group of people who thought because of their ethnic heritage, they would automatically gain God's approval. In fact, that's what's been happening all through Romans. Remember in Romans 1, 18 through 32, Paul pointed out how the Gentiles, non-Israelites, were sinners. And all of the Jewish Christians in the room would have been nodding their head. And then because they, some of them at least, sort of thought, because we've been circumcised, because we have the law, because we're Jewish people, we are automatically going to get God's favor. But then in chapter 2, Paul flipped the tables on them and pointed out, Just because you have the law and just because you are a Jew doesn't mean you'll automatically find God's favor because God doesn't show favoritism. God doesn't have favorites. So he's arguing to this audience that has Jewish Christians that their ethnic identity won't bring them into God's family automatically or bring God's favor upon them. There's no favoritism with God, so you aren't going to find it through an ethnic superiority. Now, I think that this is tough for us to wrestle with because we're not Jewish Christians. So there's not a one-to-one parallel between our experience and their experience. But I do think that it's safe to say that at least in some places, and maybe even for some of us, 
We, we almost equate being a Christian to a certain national identity. And in fact, there are a lot of people out there who do this. Uh, there are whole movements that try to do this. They sort of set up um, the way to become a Christian is to look like this ethnic group or this national group. I don't know how much of a problem that is at our church, so I don't want to spend too long on this. But if you find some message like that attractive, like to be a Christian, you need to be a good American or something like that. If, that, if you hear a message like that and it sounds attractive to you, I just want to tell you Paul would not approve of that. There's no way to get God's favor through a particular ethnic or national identity. Does that make sense? I don't want to go on this too long, but because it's a thing, we at least need to have the resources or tools so that we can identify it and reject it regardless of the form it shows up, whether it's during the Second Temple period in ancient Judaism or in our modern day. But on the upshot, what happens if we reject ethnic superiority as a way of attaining divine favor? If we, if we can all agree that's not how you'll get God's favor, how does that help us? Well, I think it at least pushes us to consider why we would reject ethnic superiority as the way to attain divine favor. Um, I think most religions that you examine that are very ethnically based have no resources to argue that their ethnic group is not better than other ethnic groups. And that's why when you look at world history, a lot of wars are religious and ethnic kind of combined. But Christianity gives us the resources to say that ethnic superiority has nothing to do with Christianity. In fact, God wants people across the globe to know him and love him and worship him. So a lot of people will say that ethnic superiority is bad, but they really have nothing to ground that in. Christians do, because God forever wanted all people to know him and love him and worship him, and Christianity gives us the tools to reject ethnic superiority. Um, but what happens if we can agree on that? Well, first, I think we will automatically become more welcoming of people who look different than us. If our church can really grab onto the reality that being a particular ethnicity doesn't give you God's approval, then we can be welcoming to people of other ethnic and cultural backgrounds. And in fact, as they get folded into the life of our church, we can start to separate what of our Christian practices are really just Americanized Christianity and what is actual Christianity. So as we welcome Christians from across the globe into our church family, we'll be able to adopt a Christianity that's not just for Americans, but for all peoples. Now, some churches try to adopt different cultural practices when there's no one from that culture in their church. And usually it goes really poorly because we don't know what we're doing because we're not those people. I don't think that there's a lot of virtue in trying to be multicultural as like a value that we pursue by posturing towards it. Instead, I think what we should do is whenever there are people of other ethnicities who come to our church, that we just welcome them in and fold them in. And as they fold into our church, we can benefit from the way that Christianity is practiced across the globe. But second, if we can realize that ethnic um, superiority has nothing to do with the gospel and nothing to do with divine favor, then we can become more missional. We'll actually care more about reaching other people and not just trying to 
get them to look like us, but trying to get them to understand the message of the gospel of grace. We can put energy and effort behind our missional efforts because we're not just trying to make American churches. We're trying to see churches raised up wherever God would save people. Finally, if, if we can realize that our ethnic identity has nothing to do with gaining God's favor, then we also realize that our ethnic identity isn't a burden. Okay, who you are, you can't change your ethnic identity. You can't even really change your cultural background, and that's not necessarily problematic. Okay, so for some of you, these things might seem like they're not a big deal or they might not matter. But at least in some places, um, these are big deals. And I want you to at least have the resources so when you encounter these questions, you'll know that the Bible has the answer for them. But know, first of all, that ethnocentrism or ethnic superiority is an insufficient way of finding God's divine favor. But second, what's the other insufficient method? I want to suggest that Paul is pointing out here that moralism and legalism are insufficient methods of gaining God's favor. Moralism and legalism will not bring you God's favor. In fact, moralism and legalism actually create a hospitable environment for hypocrisy, which brings us right back to where we were last week with the problem of hypocrisy. So notice in, in these verses, in 17 and following, Paul identifies the fact that these Christians were feeling superior because they had the law. They were boasting in God that they knew his will, that they could approve the things that are superior, and on and on he goes. But then he leverages an argument against them. He says in verse 21, you then who teach another, don't you teach yourself? You who preach, you must not steal, do you steal? You who say you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who detest idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? Do you see that just having the law didn't do anything for them? In fact, it, the way people respond to the law is hypocritical because we can never perfectly keep the law, so we try to hide it. Paul, in the rest of Romans, is going to go to great pains to show us that the law was never intended to give people special access to God or to be the means by which they would receive his divine favor. No one can reach God by climbing the ladder of the law. That's what Paul is trying to get at here. And in fact, when we try to do that, we often add to the law and, and we minimize the greater points of the law in favor of lesser points. We treat it disproportionately. We add to it and we, leave, we lead legalistic lives that don't result in God's favor. Now, um, if we try to live that way, in a really legalistic way, as if we can just do all of the right things and eventually get God's divine favor, if, if we live that way, we know we're going to become hypocr hypocrites eventually. And if you're a really good hypocrite, you can still get praise from people. But what Paul is showing that you need a way to live that doesn't give you praise from people, but from God. That's what that final verse is saying. So legalism is not the answer. Um, once again, it's kind of hard to draw perfect parallels because none of us, at least none of you that I know well enough, are saying um, we have the Old Testament law and we're going to live by this perfectly and that's how we're going to gain God's favor. I don't think that most of us are saying that. 
But I do think that all of us could be inclined to think that because we have the Bible and we know a lot about Christianity, that somehow we're better than other people and somehow God is going to become impressed with us because of how good we are at being Christians. If we live that way, not only will God not be impressed with us because we can't earn God's favor, um, we also are, are eventually going to become legalistic and hypocritical and we're not going to get other people's favor either. In fact, the result is going to be what Paul says in verse 24, that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. When we think that we can earn God's favor, we're inevitably going to fail, but we're going to posture in a way that doesn't just fail us earning God's favor, it's actually going to teach people that they can't earn God's favor, and instead of them wanting to worship God, they're going to blaspheme God's name. Um, to try to get this across, I want to read you a really, really long quote that's from a guy who tried to rephrase this text for modern Christians. Okay, because if you hear this text about Jews being legalistic, you might think, ah, oh, this just doesn't matter to me. But a rephrasing of the text, if you plug in all of the things that we do in our Christian world, I think you'll feel how convicting this text can be. This guy writes, he rephrases it in this way. Now you, if you call yourself a Christian, if you rely on the spirit and boast in the triune God, if you claim to be theologically conservative because you attend the right conferences, if you're convinced that you're a guide for lost people, a light for those who are in darkness, an instructor of Sunday school children because you went to the finest seminary for preachers. Well then, you who preach on Sunday, what do you do between Monday and Saturday? You who preach legalism, do you burden others with your own list of rules on how to curry God's favor? You who like to jump on the social justice bandwagon, do you pay a pittance of a wage to the immigrants who work your yard because you know they're not legal residents? You who claim to be pro-family, do you invest time and energy in your spouse and children? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you watch internet porn in hotels on business trips? You who tell us to tithe till it hurts, do you give to God from your own pocket? You who boast in your denomination, do you hold your denomination accountable when it fails to report sex abuse or when it sucks up to politicians, you know have a sham faith? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed across the internet because of you. That gets home in a little bit of a different way. That's convicting because if you're like me, even if you examined this past week, you failed to live in a way that was pleasing to God. And you know deep in your heart of hearts that both God looks at that sin and he sees it. And in the end, you'll never be able to convince everyone else that you're a perfect Christian because you're not. That leaves us pretty hopeless, doesn't it? If, if our only answer to obtain divine favor is by trying to live a perfect life, we're never going to make it. We're always going to be full of guilt. And even Christians, even all of us in this room, I would say, adopt that way of thinking instead of what we know to be true and what we'll consider in a few moments. Um, even today, you know, Kate and I were talking this morning and I did some things this week that I am not proud of and that I don't think God was proud of. And it's hard to preach a sermon when you've done that uh, because you kind of feel like everyone can see everything that you just did. And, and if our hope for divine favor is living well enough or right enough, we're never gonna get it. It's, it's really hopeless. Have I impressed this on you? Do you feel this in your own life and experience? Um, 
if we can all admit that a legalistic way, a legalistic approach, a legalistic way of obtaining to find favor won't work, if we can get rid of that mechanism, here are some positive things that come out of it, okay? First, if we get rid of a legalistic attitude, we're able to cultivate a culture of openness and deep relationships because we're not afraid of what we have to hide. Um, if we're being legalistic, we can't be open with other people because in a legalistic world, there's no forgiveness from God or from one another. More than that, you can't show all the bad parts about you because you're going to be very worried about the judgment that you're going to receive. And in fact, you won't make people feel comfortable talking to you about their hardships and about their sin struggles because they know you're gonna do the same thing to them. But if we can reject a legalistic manner of operating, then we can cultivate a church culture that allows for openness and transparency and forgiveness. Um, second, when we can dispense with legalism, um, I think we'll be able to dispense with a pervading sense of guilt. Um, because how do legalistic people get over their guilt? By just trying to be better. But when that doesn't work, you're back in the guilt cycle. Okay, I, th I think a lot of us deal with this. If the way that we view the world and Christianity is in this, through this legalistic lens, then we'll never be able to believe that God will forgive us unless we can earn it first. And that changes the way we re relate to one another. So if we can get rid of these legalistic motivations, then we open ourselves up to operate within a framework of grace and belonging to God rather than within a framework of earning God's approval. Okay, so two insufficient methods. One, ethnic superiority. Two, legalism. So point number two on the outline, a misdirected approach. Okay, so I think a lot of us, when we feel like Christianity isn't doing it for us because we've been trying to live in this legalistic way, um, and it's, it's just not work, working. We're not finding a life of flourishing. Other people look at our lives and they don't see a life of flourishing. Um, what happens is people don't worship God and instead God's name is blasphemed among us. Um, the way that this worked out for ancient Israel, you'll notice that Paul's quoting an Old Testament text, Isaiah 52.5. The way this worked for Israel, when they were trying to perform and they failed and became hypocritical and then eventually didn't live for God at all, they got sent into exile. And all of the pagan nations saw Israel in exile and they basically said, Israel's God is a weak, powerless God. Can't do anything for them. So let's worship our gods instead. Well, I think the way that this translates into our modern day experience is that people say the God of the Bible, the God of Christianity is not a God that's worth seeking after. But um, some people then turn to atheism. You know, no God is worth seeking after. Some people might turn to other religions, but ultimately God's name is blasphemed instead of worshiped. So then there's one problem though. There's something in us deep inside that we can't even identify sometimes that is seeking God's approval. Even when we say we don't care about God's approval anymore, we're in, built into us is a drive to find God's approval. And when we give up on finding it from the true God, we try to find it in other ways. Okay, let me try to explain what I mean. I'm going to quote someone. It's a really long quote again. But it's this guy who's not a Christian who's recognizing that all of us want God's approval. Okay, this is what he's saying. Um, atheism isn't the answer. 
okay? In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. So do you see where I'm going with this? When we feel like Christianity isn't working for us because we've distorted it, it's not that we stop worshiping. It's not that we stop trying to get a form of divine approval. We just choose to try to get it somewhere else. He goes on and says this. Um, and an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. So this is a non-Christian saying that there's, even if you don't believe in God, you should still try to worship that God. We don't agree with that. We say there is a true God that we ought to worship. But what he's trying to say is when we choose to worship something other than a God that's bigger than us, it actually eats us up. But I think often Christians choose to worship something other than God because they feel like they're not getting divine approval. They're not finding life in him. But this is what happens. He writes, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power. You will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You will always end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. And he says this, look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they are unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And the so-called real world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the so-called real world of men and money and power hums along quite nicely on the fuel of fear and contempt and frustration and craving and the worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. The freedom all to be lords of our tiny skull-sized kingdoms alone at the center of creation. What I'm trying to say is, when we try to get God's favor in ways that aren't working, we don't give up on trying to find a form of divine favor in, in any other way other than getting it from the true God actually imprisons us in our own heads. Does this make sense? Um, Christians, all of us, even though we outwardly profess and genuinely profess to worship the one true God, all of us can unconsciously begin worshiping other things because we find favor there for a time. But if we keep walking down that road, making money or beauty or even good things like our marriages and children, everything, eventually those things will consume us because they can't give us the kind of divine approval and favor that can only come from God. Christians do this. We do this. We become disenchanted with God and we try to find a God-like life, approval and favor in something else. And it doesn't work. Even a non-Christian can tell us that it's better to worship the God of the Bible that he doesn't believe in to worship any of these idols of our hearts. Okay, so if the legalistic approach doesn't work, if the ethnic superiority approach doesn't work, if making gods out of other things doesn't work, what does work? How can we actually receive God's approval? How can we receive his divine favor? 
verses 25 through 29, points us in the right direction. Paul argues here how a person can receive praise from God. And he says that it's not through anything external, but it's actually through something that God does inside of you. I won't reread all of these verses, but in this context, uh, there were certain people who were saying the Jewish practice of circumcision and keeping the law is what would gain you divine approval. And Paul uses something of a play on words. He, He uses the metaphor and says, you don't need external circumcision, you need internal circumcision. You need something that will go on in your heart that will not just change what you do, but change the kind of person that you are. There's a reason that Paul uses terms of heart circumcision. It's because all the way back in Deuteronomy, chapter 10, verse 16, and chapter 30, verse 6, when Israel received the law, Moses told them they needed something other than the law to be on right terms with God, to have a right standing with God. They needed a heart change, and Moses called it heart circumcision too. He said they needed a kind of heart change that would cause them to love God and love other people because in that is the fulfillment of the whole law. In fact, that's what Paul gets into later in the book in Romans 12 and 13. He says that love fulfills the law. But we need a radical work of God that transforms our heart through what Paul calls heart circumcision to bring us into a right relationship with God. You see, getting God's divine favor is not a math equation, though many of us think of it that way. Many of us think, if I do this thing, plus relate to God in this way, therefore God will give me blank. And for some of you, you define God's divine favor as having a nice, cushy life. For others of you, you you define God's divine favor as getting to heaven when you die. However you define that divine favor, it's hard to say, however you define divine favor, you might be tending to think of it as a math equation. If you do this and then God does that, then you'll get it. But Paul is trying to say that God's divine favor is nothing about a math equation or earning it or making a bargain with God. Instead, God's divine favor is most fully experienced in a relationship with God that's marked by love. That's what Paul's getting at here. Now, you might ask, if that's what God was getting after, then why did he give the law to begin with? It can get really confusing, can't it? Um, if, if God was really after a love relationship with his people, then why did he give them the law to begin with? I think the answer goes something like this. Um, even though the people Paul is talking to were looking at the law as like a ladder that would get them into God's divine favor, they totally misunderstood the purpose of the law from the very start. You see, it's not the giving of the law that got them out of Egypt. The law didn't redeem them. The law has never been intended to bring you into God's divine favor. That happens as a work of grace alone. The law was just simply like training wheels to teach Israel how to walk in God's ways. It was never intended to get them to God to begin with. That can only happen by God coming down to us. That can only happen by God doing something in us. It's not something that we conjure up within ourselves. It's something that's initiated and given by God. Now, next week, we're going to consider this a bit more fully as we get to the end of chapter two and back into chapter three. But for now, 
I want us to click on the hyperlink that Paul gives us in this text just so we can at least start to get the picture. So if you look at that quote, that Old Testament citation, the name of God is blasphemed, blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. If you go to Isaiah 52, 5, where that's coming from, and you keep reading, you're going to, you're going to read why this verse shows up. And it's because God's prophets were indicting Israel and saying, you haven't done it. You can't do it on your own. In fact, you're in need of the saving work of the servant of the Lord. In fact, later in Isaiah 52 in verses 13 through 15, God promised that his servant would be successful in resolving the problem in which Israel failed to live out the Torah in the Gentiles blasphemed God rather than worshiped God. And notice how the servant of the Lord is described. He's described in this way. His appearance was so disfigured that it did not look like a man and his form did not resemble a human being. So many nations will marvel at him. And then the prophet keeps going into Isaiah 53, where this servant figure suffers and takes sin on himself and even dies to bring about the solution for God's people. I think what Paul is trying to do is to clue us into the fact that the ultimate way to find divine favor is nothing we could ever do, but something that God did for us in Jesus. Jesus, the servant, the suffering servant, who was God himself, out of love came to humanity and died on their behalf and took the payment for their sin and rose again to give them new life. And in Jesus' obedience, we see the, for the first time someone who obeyed, obeyed all of the commands of God, not to try to earn his way up to God, but out of love, and who calls us to walk in his ways, and in fact, counts us as part of him. This is what Paul will get into later in the letter, when he says that we're justified, that we're counted as righteous, because we receive the righteousness of God in Christ by faith. It's through Jesus that something inside of us starts to change because it's through Jesus that we were given the Holy Spirit who animates us, who gives us new life, who does something to our hearts that we could never do ourselves. Jesus' act of love transforms our heart so that we become something we otherwise wouldn't be. And as a result, God speaks words of praise over us instead of judgment. It's not because of us, it's through Jesus. Now, Paul doesn't fully treat this at this point in the letter. So you're going to have to keep back, coming back and keep hearing more of Romans to see more of what this means. But at a minimum, what I would want us to all leave here thinking is, I can't earn God's divine approval. The story of the Bible is not a performance-based story. Instead, it's a grace-based story where God did something for me in Jesus Christ. And if you want to know more about what that means, I would love to talk with you. If you would say, I've been a Christian for a really long time, but when it comes down to it, I think I've been living a life based on this performance narrative. I've been trying to find divine favor from the idols of my heart instead of God himself. I, I haven't felt the words of divine praise that I know can come, not from anything I do, can do, but only through what God did for me. If that describes you, we'd love to talk with you. We'd love to help you keep thinking about this and find rest in the praise that comes from God and not from other people. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would help us 
work through these gnarly aspects of our heart that are quick to be legalistic and hypocritical, quick to raise up idols of the heart, quick to give ourselves to other things, quick to try to earn your favor instead of resting in Christ who earned it for us. Would your spirit work in our hearts so that they would be transformed, so that we would enter into a love relationship with you and not a legalistically defined one? Would you give us the grace to see where we are in error? And would you give us the faith to rest in Jesus today? It's in Christ that we pray. Amen.